White Rocket Entertainment. Sean Connery is James Bond, Agent 007. Never say never again. My name is Bond. Oh, you're Mr. Bond. I believe I'm having you in half an hour. Oh, splendid. Your room or mine. Have you, Mr. Bond? You're marvelously well equipped. Thank you, James. So are you. Good to see you, Mr. Bond. Things have been awfully dull around here. I hope we're going to have some gratuitous sex and violence. I certainly hope so, too. Bunt. The game is over. Sean Connery is Ian Fleming's James Bond in Never Say Never Again. White Rocket Entertainment, podcast number 463. Hello and welcome to On Her Majesty's Secret Podcast, the White Rocket Entertainment James Bond Podcast brought to you by all of our great supporters via Patreon.com. I'm Van Allen Plexico and I am joined as always by my co-host for this great review series of the Bond films, Alan J. Porter. Welcome back again, Alan. Thank you, Vance. Good to be back. It's good to be continuing, though I obviously had been hoping to do a different movie this month. We're just going to have to keep waiting for that one. So uh, I think we're going to have some fun time filling the filling the months in between as we wait for No Time to Die with uh, a look at some more of the offbeat aspects of movies. <laughs> it is not yet time to die. <laughs> so no, we'll, If it ever will be. If so. it ever will be. Yeah, that's true. But that's right. I mean, we've got... Um, it actually worked out because there are other Bond-related, Bond-adjacent movies that we can look at, and we can go ahead and do those before time for the big new one. And so this is about as legit of a Bond movie as you can review after doing the, the main 24 as there are, right? So tell the folks, what are we reviewing this time? Oh, you're never going to get me to say that ever, ever again. <laughs> uh, yeah, we are doing the unofficial, official... Thanks to the courts. Yeah. Remake of Thunderball that isn't quite a remake of Thunderball. Um, <laughs> never say never again with the, the return of uh, Mr. Connery. This is such an odd duck. It's one of those movies that when people that aren't big Bond fans, you know, when, they, when they're curious about it, it's like when they ask what the deal is with this movie, you kind of have to say, well, sit down and get a drink because it's a, it's a yeah. complicated story. So I guess before we do anything else, maybe I should let you, I think I could do it too, but I think we should let you explain to folks that, because that, we have a lot of listeners that are that are just you know getting into Bond or whatever, casually, they need to know what the deal is. What is the deal with this movie compared to all the others and why does it exist? Well, it basically exists because of a court case, but... 
I actually did. Uh, you know, you could you could literally write a whole book about the backstory on this one, and okay, actually somebody, somebody did. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so if you really want to get deep, um, I highly recommend the Battle for Bond by Robert Sellers and Len Dayton. Yes, that Len Dayton, the thriller yeah. writer, which came out in two thousand eight. Really good book on everything. But to try and sort of bring it down into just a sort of a few minutes. So before Bond was ever on screen in the early days when Fleming. Fleming always wanted to get Bond on screen. Um, so at, uh, in the relative early days as Bond was starting to become more successful, he started to work on a screenplay and then brought in a couple of other folks to work on it. And one of those was fledgling producer Kevin McClory. And they wrote a script, a movie script called Thunderball. Uh, fast forward a couple of years and Fleming was due to write another novel. The, the script had never got produced, never gone anywhere. So he took the script and turned it into a novel called Thunderball, which was produced as, uh, which was published with just his name on it, which somewhat upset the other guys who'd been involved in creating the original screenplay. So they sued him. Um, and if you look at later editions of Thunderball, it actually does name, it becomes from a story by Kevin mm -hmm. McClory, Jack Weddington, and Ian Fleming. Um, and somebody else, and I don't have it in front of me, and I should have been better prepped. Um, but anyway... Um, yeah, and that carried on and then when it became Eon came to make the movie of Thunderball if you I think we touched on this when we did the review if you actually look it's actually uh, it's actually on screen as produced by Kevin McClory with Broccoli and Saltzman as associate producers it, Kevin McClory got his name on that as um, the producer um, but the relationship soured and after a while Kevin McClory went back and basically sued both uh, Fleming and Eon that they were using things that belonged to him that came out of the Thunderball that originated with the Thunderball screenplay and that basically he had as much right to them as Ian Fleming and it went on and on and on and on and on and on. So eventually it came out the settlement there was I don't know how much money changed hands but the settlement basically came out that McClory owned and I'm going to read this off the list here because I've actually got this written down McClory owned Spectre and the octopus insignia. He owned the characters Ernst Stavro Blofeld, Domino Smith, Fatima Blush, Fiona Volpe. He owned the idea of James Bond being up against the hijack of an atomic bomb. He owned James Bond fighting the Sicilian Mafia. He owned the concept of the Shrublum's Health Clinic, the use of a, the Bahamas as a location, a yacht with a hidden hydrofoil, and a rocket firing motorcycle. And he shared with Eon the character, the movie, the, the movie character of James Bond, the idea of casino gambling, MQ, Moneypenny, Phoenix Lighter, and the Aston Martin DB5 were all co-owned by McClory and Eon. So hopefully that makes it as clear as mud. <laughs> so basically, McClory owned a lot of the characters that had become and things that had actually been established in the Eon movie um, franchise which is why they stopped using Blofeld and Spectre etc for many many years mm -hmm. um, so he basically having these I, things in his pocket decided that he wanted to go off and make a another movie again another round of court cases um, and he basically was given the right he had the right I think for 10 years to make a James Bond movie based not on the movie not on the he couldn't remake the movie Thunderball he couldn't make it based on the novel Thunderball, it had to be based on the original source material, which was the original screenplay. 
which is where the character of Fatima Blush comes from because she was in the original screenplay but not in the novel and the Eon movie. I was about to um, ask you, that's the one that that's the one I was most puzzled about is I kept thinking she's got to be in there somewhere but I don't remember her. Right, which is why some of the names are different and so forth because they're okay. actually drawn from the original screenplay and that's what they were originally called in the screenplay. Oh, I didn't realize that part. Okay, good. Well, now that makes Okay, sense. so he had... So he, he basically announced a project that was going to be called James Bond of the Secret Service um, and that Orson Welles was going to play the villain um, and he was trying to get um, Connery involved. At one point he was even talking to George Lazenby before Connery was confirmed. Um, hmm. But then uh, he managed to get Connery on board with offers. Well, one was the big paycheck. Connery was actually also going to write it with the aforementioned Len Dayton. Um, so they started on a script. Um, and then Connery also got uh, a percentage of the profits, I believe, as well. Um, so it, And producer credit. So, yeah, mm -hmm. I mean, Connery got a lot out of it. Um, mm -hmm. So... It went through various things. At one point, it was going to be called Spectre. Um, at one point, I think the, the Len Dayton, Sean Connery screenplay was called Warhead. Um, then it was mm. going to be called Longitude 78 West. Um, and it just sort of went through various iterations. Um, and eventually, I think it was actually Connery's wife who came up with the fact that he often said he was never going to do it again. And the play on, on that is where the title Never Say Never again came from that actually came from sean connery's wife and i believe she actually gets a credit in the end credits for coming up with the name of the movie <laughs> it's it's, um, a, it's a good bond title isn't it it is a good bond title yeah i like it so that that's sort of the basic backstory is that if you want to bring it down into a couple of sentences ian fleming and kevin mcclory before bond was the hit country worked together on a screenplay fleming took that screenplay used it for the novel which then became the movie but didn't give McClory the rights, he went, took it to court, he got the rights back to use certain elements of the original screenplay, and a 10-year time frame to go make his own James Bond movie. And this is the result of, of all that machinations. And, like I say, it's, it's an interesting movie because in some ways it's, in, in some ways it almost seems more like a James Bond movie than some of the actual ones, but in other ways it doesn't seem as much like a James Bond movie. It's such an odd duck. It's just a weird fit. It's like a strange hybrid somehow, and we'll talk about that as we kind of go through it. Well, I think that's specifics. partly because it ended up with using a lot of the classic tropes and characters that had been built up mm -hmm. in the original Connery run that we all became to think of as part of the Bond experience, but yeah. then those were things that actually belonged to Kevin McClory, <laughs> so they had to stop using them. But because they were part of that foundational early Connery run, it's things that make Never Say Never feel a bit more like a traditional Bond movie than maybe some of the Roger Moore ones at the time because it was using those touchstone foundational tropes and characters that we got to know. So, so um, I guess we have our usual things to go through. Now, this one doesn't fit in anywhere on my ranking list. So when we get to that, I really don't, I'd have to stop and think about it, how I'd want to fit it in compared to some of the others. But what do we need to do first in our list of well, I actually, pre, I actually, pre analysis? I, I actually did do that thinking. Okay. Um, <laughs> so I, I put myself a note. I think I'd put it around 19 or 20 on my list. I think I'd put it after Diamonds Are Forever, but before Review to a Kill. So sort of between 19 mm. and 20 on my list. Mm. Yeah. I, I know if you. Mm. Yeah, I'm going to have it ahead of a bunch of those Roger Moore ones I don't like as much, and I'm definitely going to have it right. above the Daltons. 
I'm going to have it above things like Skyfall. I, and, I, and I was talking to friends of mine this morning about it, that the, the thing about it, and, and I say this to kind of explain my ranking for it and problems ranking it is, it seems the way, not Connery and, and all that, but a lot of the stuff surrounding it, the way it looks, the way it sounds, a lot of it just screams 1983 in a way that Octopussy doesn't. Yeah. Octopussy is almost timeless compared to this movie. This movie seems like it's nailed into place firmly in the early mid 80s. Yeah, it, it is definitely a early early eighties movie. It is it's nailed itself to that yeah. that point in time. You're right. Well, yes, Octopussy um, it is timeless. Um, yeah, to a large degree. Yeah, to a large degree. Yeah, exactly. You can look at Octopussy and you could guess when it came out, but other than like the way that the the color in the film looks or the age of of more or whatever or the car models, that could that movie could take place anytime, pretty much. Yep. Yeah, and, and this movie absolutely happened in 1983. There's just no doubt, no doubt about yeah, it. Yeah, very much so. Very much so. Um, the interesting thing is, and we were just actually touched on the title, and we, you know what we usually do when we talk about the rankings is also the alignment to Fleming. So obviously, this aligns very closely to Fleming because it's based on that original screenplay, um, um, which became a novel and then first one movie and now two movies. So yeah, very mm. definitely aligned to to Fleming in some areas. But interestingly, and I never really noticed this before. I was thinking about it for this. This is the first Bond movie not to have an Ian Fleming title. Oh, wow. Because right. at this point, the Eon folks were still, even though, even though the movies bore no rela- relationship, yeah. the relationship to the Fleming stories, they were still using the Fleming titles mm-hmm. up until Goldeneye. No, up until, yeah, up until Goldeneye or Fleming derived titles. And even that's a mm. Fleming derived title. Right. So, you know, this, this is the first one to not have, to have a title that has nothing to do with Ian Fleming, which. Nothing at all. Yeah. Yeah, which hadn't really struck me before. So, yeah, yeah. Well, it's just because we don't think of this one in those same ranking systems, I guess. And I and I guess I right. I I don't have my my numbered list in front of me, and I'm not going to go to all the trouble opening it, and spend the time. I'm just going to say I think I ha- I have a gut instinct that I would have this one ranked somewhere below 15, but above 20 out of the 20. If this yeah. makes 25. I, I think I have it above above the Daltons, above some of the Moors, um, but below the, most of the other Conneries and the Brosnans and Lazenby. So probably about two-thirds of the way down the list. Does that sound about... Yeah, yeah I think we're both in the same ballpark there, yeah. 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 It's got a lot yeah. to recommend it. It's just also got a lot that you... But that's like all, almost every Bond movie is that way, though, right? That there's a lot that yeah. you go, oh, that's awesome, and there's things that you go, ah. Uh. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so we talked a bit about the fact that uh, Connery and then Dayton were going to write it, but uh, when it was called Warhead, but that passed on. Um, and then the screen, the event, the the final screenplay was done by Lorenzo Semple Jr. Yeah, who, who to me is always the producer of the Batman Adam West TV show. Oh, was, I didn't realize that. I knew the name. He did Three yeah, Days of I mean, the Condor. That's, that's where I know the name from. Is from the end credits of the the Batman TV show and the Green Hornet. Um, uh, and he, he also wrote the uh, the Flash Gordon movie. So these are all fun oh, things God. that I love. They're all fun things that I love, but okay. they're not exactly foundation for doing Bond. Um, he oh, I'm just looking. He wrote the 1976 King Kong. That's probably oh, where. Yes, yeah, yeah that I mean, one. Done, he has done. 
He's done some good stuff. I mean, he did Papillon. He did both versions of Papillon. He did Three Days of the Condor. I mean, he did some yeah. really tight stuff, but it just seems an odd choice. It um, is. But he, I think he did yeah. a good job, though. I didn't think the script was a problem here. I thought the script was actually well, pretty good. I actually think most of that actually came, comes from the fact that Connery didn't like the script, and he brought in the British uh, screenwriters Dick Clement and Ian Lafrenet, um, ah, who, yeah. are, who are uncredited to do basically the final part. And I think a lot, a lot of the dialogue and some of the, uh, the humor comes from those two guys. So, Well, I was going to say, and we, again, we'll talk about some of this stuff as we go along, but coming up in a minute, but I really felt like they, they gave Connery, I guess we'd had a, you know, a decade at this point of Roger Moore style humor. Okay. Yeah. And so one of the things that this movie was really refreshing, particularly at the time, and it's also refreshing if you watch like all if you watch the if you watch most of the Roger Moore bonds till you're just kind of like saturated with them and then you watch this it's a nice palate cleanser in a way because the humor is that Sean Connery very dry deadpan humor as opposed to you know what Roger does which is a little more little more yeah. little more wacky so he ha- I think that Ro- I think that Sean Connery's bond in this movie has a really large number of good lines like good funny yeah. lines I, I think that comes from Clement and Lafrenet I, mm-hmm. I think so yeah oh there's a couple there I mean when the when the nurse says to him I need you to fill this specimen cup and he says from over here, from over here. yeah <laughs> I mean that yeah. kind of that kind of like little dry one-liners I just those are so Connery and and they give him a they give him probably like what seven or eight different times in the movie that he gets to say something like that and it's really good yeah yeah, so, yeah, exactly. So, um, and then budget-wise, we usually talk about the budget. So the budget. Uh, so let's do a comparison with Occupancy. The budget for this one was thirty-six million. Which mm. I was listening to another podcast about nineteen eighties movies the other day, and they said that basically this was the second most expensive um, movie in nineteen eighty-three. Um, only Superman three had a bigger budget. Oh. Um, well, that turned out well. Um, Octop- <laughs> Octop- yeah, Octopussy's budget was, was 27.5. This was 36, but so probably most of that was Sean Connery's salary. Well, no, yeah. $3 million of it was Sean Connery's salary, I believe. Um, and the uh, box office was slightly more for Octopussy. Yeah, so the box office on this was 55, and Octopussy did 60, just under 68. So, uh, yeah, Octopussy got the bigger return. So. Yeah. Which is not surprising, but that was pretty, you know, it was pretty on par. Uh, it's not like one was a runaway success and the other one was a complete failure. They were pretty close to each other. I think it's and it, it's. I think that they're both coming out the same year hurt them both. I think that it would have been better if they could have spaced out a year. And I think it probably hurt this one that even though older people probably recognize Sean Connery, you were so far into the Roger Moore era at that point that the, the casual moviegoer in 1983, Roger Moore was James Bond. Yeah, and they they didn't. I mean, they they probably saw Sean Connery and went, "Oh, didn't he play that character one time a long time ago or something?" You know, but it had been what twelve years. Yeah, and his his quite his his career had been relatively quiet. I I mean, this is sort of going off on a tangent, but I actually think this is the movie that actually relaunched Sean Connery's career as the older character actor because it was after this that he did things like Indiana Jones, mm. Highlander, The mm. Rock. Uh, you know, I. I um, Hunt for Red October. I, I think it was this that sort of brought Connery back into the both the public uh, view. Um, that's not the right word, but you know, both into the, the public consciousness and maybe the studios too. Yeah. That um, 
So, yeah, I think not only had been a long time since he played Bond, but I think, it, you know, he hadn't really been that active um, without actually going back and looking at his filmography for those dates. But just remembering back, I think he was fairly quiet yeah. in that period. And I, um, so, yeah, I mean, a lot of things were uh, the marketing was done around the Battle of the Bonds. It's more versus Connery and blah, 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 even though the two of them were like best buddies. Um uh, and you're right. I, I think a lot of people were like, "Oh, that's that's the old person's James Bond." Like that's you know, that's, I'm gonna, that's the old guy. I'm going to make a bold statement here, but it may not be that bold. You may say, "No, that's very obvious." I th- watching this movie again yesterday for probably like the fifth time in my life, and having watched you know the others the last time we went through them, it's no secret that in the last two or three Connery Bonds, he was basically phoning it in. I mean, I think we all can agree that yeah. he was not giving yeah. it his all, right? I feel like he gave a more focused performance in this than probably in half of the original ones. Yeah, I think he was back to enjoying it like he was in the first three mm-hmm. or four of his original ones. Yeah, certainly by the time you got to You Only Live Twice and Diamonds, he was de- certainly for Diamonds, he was definitely phoning it in. Yeah. Um, and, you know, wasn't happy. And I think he was enjoying himself here. Um, I think some of his delivery was a bit by the book, and we'll talk uh, when we get there, but. In general, I, I think, yes, he was enjoying himself here. and uh, It showed. It showed, yeah. yeah. Which, you know, again, is also why I like the Pierce Brosnan ones, because Brosnan clearly enjoys himself as Bond. Roger Moore clearly enjoyed being Bond, you know, um, as opposed to the <laughs> sul- sulky schoolboy we've got now. I was um, going to say, I know there's one. There's one that you're not you're leaving out. Who do you seem to be leaving out there? I don't know. Um, but, yeah, I, I think he was enjoying himself, back enjoying himself here. As well, and, I, and as I said, I think this is probably the point that relaunched his relaunched his career yeah. as the you know um, the, he could be the older mm-hmm. lead um, guy, you know. In it, I mean, the interesting thing, obviously, the age thing is that um, he's clearly out of shape here. I mean, you know, there's there's the, there's the horrible rug. I, you know, like part of me is like <laughs> when you see what he was like in his later movies without the rug, I think he looks much more classy. Just being Sean Connery, why they had to try and make him look younger with the rug, I I don't know. I think they, I know they let his sort of grey hair at the sides show, but that brown thing stuck on it, you know, the triple stuck on his head is like they should have just not bothered. I think it would have been much better. Um, and you know, and he's got that paunch, and you get you know, uh, Fatima blush saying that he looks great, and I'm like, oh really? Um, <laughs> yeah, and he's got some mileage on his face too. Yeah, uh, and he's got mileage on his face. But the thing is, he was three years, he's three years younger than Roger Moore. Yes. But at that point, Roger Moore looked like he was at his physical best. Yeah, I, I, said, I said this morning to some friends. Since one of his friends, I said, I said, it's amazing to me that Sean Connery is younger than Roger Moore, you know, was younger than Roger Moore overall. And as much as we complain about Roger Moore looking old in A View to a Kill, that movie came out two years later, and yet he still looks younger than Sean Connery looks in this Connery. one. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. So I, yeah, I think I wish they'd have sort of played up the because the and we're going to get into the opening sequence, but they, they played that up at the beginning that he was basically semi-retired and teaching and stuff and wasn't in the field anymore. So I think they should have just gone with that a bit more personally um, and just let Sean Connery be Sean Connery uh, because you know as we've seen in the later movies, he looked you know as the older guy with the thinning hair and the grey and stuff. Oh God, I mean you think about him in Highlander, he was badass in Highlander. Oh yeah. Um, so you know. I think they should have just gone that way. So I'll get off that soapbox. He was um, 53. <laughs> he was 53 in this movie. 53, yeah. I had to look it up. Yeah. 50, 53. Well, he probably was 52 when they filmed it. They filmed it, yeah. But he, he did look a lot older than Roger Moore, who was, I could say, 
I was going to say at that time was three years older, but was always three years older than Sean Connery. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, all right. Do we actually want to get into the movie, or do you? Yes, yes. But I have I have a preface for that, which is a couple of things about the credits. Before I even mention the cast, I was startled to see that Michel Legrand was the wrote the score because the yeah. only the only music that stands out in my mind from this movie is. Never say never say never never, and which I just want to pull my hair out. And then that dis that awful disco dancing music that Kim Basinger is dancing to. Those are the only two parts of the music that stand out to me, which is bizarre because Michelle Legrand wrote the score for Ice Station Zebra, which is one of the best scores ever. I love that album, and I'm just thinking, oh, I can't wait to hear this great Michelle Legrand music in this movie. And when the movie's over, I'm like, what? Where? What did he write? I know the the score is absolutely terrible. It's abysmal. I mean, the the, the whole j- it's it's like he sort of just went off and did some jazz riffs and yeah. themes and nineteen eighties stuff. And yeah, it's 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 a horrible score. Um, so apparently they did approach John Barry, yeah. who um, declined politely. It's a good mm. Britishism for t- saying f off. Um, <laughs> uh, but he politely de- declined after out of loyalty to Eon. Um, and uh, so apparently they went through three or four others. Uh, I don't think Michel Legrand was top five in their pick list. If he, if he was, I think he was maybe he was available and you've got three weeks and put a score together and he went out and did some jazz improv. I don't know. It sounds was, horrible. It sounds terrible, so, yeah. Well, the other yeah. thing I was going to say about that is the cast. The cast of this movie is actually awesome. This, I mean, it is. It is. Right, here we go. Cast. Ready? Sean Connery, Klaus Maria Brandauer. I got a lot to say about him. I really want to have a conversation with you about Klaus Maria Brandauer. Oh, me too, yeah. yeah. Max von Sydow. Okay, that alone, a, a Bond movie with Max von Sydow needed to happen. Uh, yep. Barbara Carrera, Kim yep. Basinger, yep. Bernie Casey as uh, Felix, Felix and, then, yeah. and Edward Fox. I mean... And Rowan Atkinson. And Rowan Atkinson, Yes. I'd totally forgotten about him until he popped up. I'm like, oh my gosh, Roy. So that's an incredible, that's one of the better Bond casts ever, hands down. It is. Yeah, yes. it's a great Bond cast. Yes. Unbelievable. I, yeah. These are all yeah. these are all people that were big time then and are and are remembered big time now. Yeah, no, it was I mean, obviously I, I think there was a lot of, you know, this is my chance to get in a Bond movie um, yeah. type stuff. So um, which was it was a great cast. Um, Barbara Carrera apparently turned down the role of Octopussy. To do Never Say Never. Oh, wow. Oh, I could see her in that role. Yeah. And here's the thing I think is funny. Because she, she, she said she'd take a smaller part if it meant she could work with Sean Connery. Sean Connery. And she got to smooch on him. Um, yeah. Edward Fox, this is funny to me. I just thought about this. Edward Fox plays M. And he's mm-hmm. a different M from the M we had almost. I mean, I guess the last, the last time Bernard Lee was in was in Moonraker, right? And so that had been yeah. two movies earlier. And so we had a very boring replacement for him. I didn't like the guy that replaced him initially in the Roger Moore ones. Very, very dull. Just kind of don't even remember. Not very colorful at all. Then you got Edward Fox, who I love. He was in stuff. Well, he and his brother, I always get them confused. But, you know, stuff like Force 10 from Navarone and Gandhi and all. But anyway, he was um, a much more interesting M. And, and they had sparks kind of flying between them. And here's what I thought was really cool. The Edward Fox M reminds me a lot of the current M with Daniel Craig. Uh, yeah, I can see that. Um, yeah, I, I think the thing... Um, 
about the Emma here is he's actually in some ways he plays back to some of the things that in the Ems from the book, like the, mm. the, the obsessions about, you know, him getting periodic obsessions about certain health things. You know, if you read the books, you know, M, M does get these periodic obsessions of which going at Strublands was one. Um, and I think that came out of the screenplay and then was used later in the books. Like it, later on, he had the, an obsession about yoga. You know, he, he sort of has these, these little <laughs> obsessive right. things of the time, which they played with. I think the difference here is, as you said, the spark, there's a there's a clear tension and sparks between them here as opposed to the paternal slash maternal mm-hmm. relationship of with between M and Bond in the mainstream Eon movies. Yeah. Um it's played very differently. And of course the interesting thing here is actually Edward Fox was much younger than Sean Connery, but he's playing his boss as if he's the older type. Yeah. Uh, I, yeah um as if he's the older guy. So um Well he also yeah, reminded I, me of the current M in the sense that he starts out trying to limit and shut down Bond and then comes yeah. to kind of appreciate his value as things go along. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Which was yeah. neat. And, and again, that that was done in 83, I, way before I, they did it in, I, <laughs> in I'm Skyfall. I'm going to point it out as we go through, but I think there's actually quite a lot of things that, that were done in this movie that then we saw later on in the later Eon films. And that's actually one of them. That's actually one of the notes I've got. got okay. Here. So Good. that, uh, yeah, that uh, I think they did that. That style of M led to the Gar- Garrett. If not overtly, I think it certainly, um, it, well, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I think it certainly informed yeah. the Gareth Mallory approach of that character, even if it was not a direct influence. So. I think so. It seemed like it. And I was going to ask you this. The running time is 134 minutes. This seemed like a longer movie. Is that, isn't that, is that on the upper side of Bond movies or is that kind of average for them? I can't remember. I think it's kind of average. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. So, do we want to get into the the actual movie itself? Let's do it. We don't get a we don't get a gun barrel. We get like a lattice work of 007s, which I thought was odd. And the worst thing is, they actually did film and score a gun barrel opening. And then what happened? I guess the lawyers were like, "Yeah, that's a little too close." That's too. Yeah, um, I was wondering what they could get away with and what they couldn't. Yeah. Yeah, but they did actually have it, have one written. They had it. They had the music written for it, and they actually filmed it, but they didn't use it. So. Yeah, it just kind of starts with the camera yeah, moving over the over the Caribbean and the 007s all over the screen, and I'm like, I needed a better opening than this with that bad music. And as you, you, you just mentioned that wonderful theme song that... Uh, never say, <laughs> never say, never, never... Oh, God. Oh, dear Lord. That's... I mean, if that one was on the albums, I'd be scraping that part of my CD off. That's just absolutely <laughs> so, the worst uh, thing ever. Yeah, yeah, was uh, well, sung by Lanny Hall, who uh, do you know her sort of previous Bond connection? No, we don't actually. No. So she was actually ma- married to Burt Bacharach, who did the score for uh, '67 Casino Royale. Oh gosh, there you go. So anyway, um, and I wish they'd had him back to do the score for this one. <laughs> um, so yeah, um, so we get the theme song. Um, to me, it actually also sounds. The way I, I, I don't like it, but also the way it's played. Um, I had a note here. To me, it sounds like it's playing on one on an old cassette. You know, when he, when yeah. your cassette got caught caught in the um, in the player in the car, yeah. and you pulled it out and the and the tape, tape. stretched, yes. and then you wound it back in and you put it put it in, and it when it played, it sort of wowed. Um, that's what it sounds like to me. It sounds like old cassette tape that's been stretched and. And back in the play. I'll tell you something else too. I had my uh, subtitles on. I actually I watched this. This is the one I don't actually. I I thought I owned, but I guess I don't own it. And so what I did was before I went to rent it somewhere or buy it on Apple TV, I brought up the Apple TV search and I just searched to see if it was on anything I get. And it's currently on something called Epix E P I X, which is like a movie yeah, yeah, channel. Yeah. yeah. 
And so yeah. I watched it on there, and I had the subtitles on, and they were actually playing the subtitles of the lyrics of that song. And honestly, the lyrics are even worse than the music. It doesn't yep. make... It's like, I know that songs don't make a lot of sense, you know. These, this is like, they didn't rhyme. They didn't fit the... It, it, it didn't even... It like they were reading the phone book while the music was playing. It didn't make any <laughs> sense at all. So I was just like, whatever is that? So, all right. Okay. Um, so we opened on the, as you said, in the Caribbean and the training exercise. Oh, yeah. So just... Just, just as a, a marketing guy, this is so. The big thing about this movie was it was the return of Sean Connery as Bond. Mm-hmm. I didn't, and I would have thought the way they would have handled this was would have been the same way that they do the intros to the 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 Bonds in the a new Bond in the Eon series that you didn't see his face to start with. Hmm. That basically, the you know, you'd have done this exercise of this guy going through and you know capturing people and knocking people out and rescuing the girl, and it wouldn't be until you actually got that final shot of the girl looking up into his face that you would have seen it would have been Sean Connery and that would have been the big reveal because the whole because you know this movie opens with oh it's Sean Connery in a bush yeah <laughs> um, and it's like really um, wouldn't you have built up some tension and some idea that I mean like they did with Diamonds when he came back for Diamonds they, you know you didn't actually see it with Sean Connery for even though everybody knew it was going to be Sean Connery <laughs> you didn't actually see him for a while I'm gonna um, I'm gonna say I think the reason, and I'm just guessing that they didn't that it didn't do it that way. I think you're right, but I think the way that the reason they didn't, I think they want you to. They, I think they figure we've got Sean Connery, we're paying him a boatload of money, we need his face up on the screen as much as possible. So if we've got yeah, I'm sure yeah, yeah. footage of Connery running around doing spy stuff, we got to show that, you know. Yeah, probably, and 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 let's make it on screen. But yeah, just opening up with Sean Connery in a bush was like. Uh, yeah, I think you could have done better than that. <laughs> it just sounds like a Dr. Seuss story. Sean Connery in a bush, Sean Connery in a dish. Okay, so. So, yeah, he's doing that training exercise, which is an interesting, by the way, interesting interesting scene because, again, yep. they're doing the fake out where you think it's real. And did, did you have this? I hadn't seen it in a few years. I had that reaction because I'm watching it more critically when we're going to talk about it always. When he fires the machine gun and nothing happens. Yeah. You hear the machine gun, but there's no bullets, there's no fire. And I'm like, wait a minute. This is like a $30 million movie with Sean Connery directed by... And we didn't talk about who directed it, by the way. And oh, yet, yeah, Irving. Irving Kirshner, yeah, from Empire Strikes yeah. Back, among other things. So it should have been awesome. But they fired that machine gun and nothing happened. And then they show the video replay where he does it. And I, and once you realize it's a put-on, you're like, okay, they're they're simulating. But then why did we hear it? And at the, did, did you immediately think, whoa, how come there was no... I must not... That wasn't the, the, the main things, I must admit. I mean, once they revealed it was a training exercise, my thought was, well, he was really handing it to those guys who were on the training <laughs> exercise. I mean, he probably broke a couple of noses and <laughs> threw guys out of the window. And, he did. You know, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, if that was a training exercise, that, that was a, you know, a bit rougher than the paintball on Gibraltar in... Uh, it was. <laughs> with the t- Timothy Dalton. Um, so, yeah, it, it just seemed... I know they set it up as a real thing, and then it turned out to be a training exercise, Which and he says that they were firing blanks, but I don't, it didn't really scan for me, that, that whole thing. Um, <laughs> uh, and to get the shots that they were showing on that video, I'm going to get nitpickier here, to, to show the, the, the shots of the training exercise they were showing on that TV screen in M's office, they would have had to have somebody basically with a camera f- following him around... Yeah, <laughs> taking those cats, but anyway, it's true. Um, 
but I like the idea that it was a training exercise and it was a good way of introducing him again as the, you know, he, he was sort of semi-retired. The 00 section was inactive. He was basically doing training and, you know, he was out of, um, you know, he, he wasn't fit enough. Therefore, I was sending him off to Shrubland. So it was a good way of setting that up, I think. Yeah. No, I thought so. Yeah. Um, it, was a so good, it, was a, it was a good pre-title sequence if it had been a pre-title sequence. Yeah, and I think that was what it was clearly filmed as. Uh, yeah. But obviously, they decided they couldn't do the gun barrel one in the opening credits type thing because that was, you know, too too close to Eon. So, um, so uh, we get Bond arriving in Shrublands in his grey Bentley, which was awesome because that's right out of the books. I mean, that's what Bond drives in the books. He doesn't drive a flashy Aston Martin. He drives a grey, big old grey Bentley, grey convertible. So that was like awesome. Um, and you get that nice uh, yeah. I, again. I think it's a uh, the screenwriter's touch of the when he pulls up and Bond gets out and he's like the uh, the guy at the door's like they don't make the, they don't make him like that anymore. He's like, mm-hmm. is he talking about Bond or is he talking about the car? You know, it's like yeah. Um, exactly. I thought that was, that was a neat little neat little thing. So. Yes, yeah. That again, that was one of like a dozen probably. Now that I think about it, of his lines that were really good in it. Absolutely. Yeah. So we get the setup of him at Shrublands. Uh, I, I don't know here. He does not look good in a tracksuit. Um, it shows his middle is spread and he's out of shape. And uh, <laughs> I, I had a note here about the rug uh, on his head. But um, and then we, we sort of jumps between there and Spectre. We get showing the Spectre HQ below the bank, which I presume is in Paris because they're speaking French. I like the idea of it being accessed through safety deposit boxes. You know, you ask for a particular safety deposit box and they turn the keys and the door. You know, the that door was good. Opens. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. Know, you walk into the Spectre HQ. I thought that was good. I like that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, this is where we get to meet my fat my blush for the first time. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, Max van Sydow as Blofeld. I've, I've heard a few folks say that they reckon that he, I mean, all his scenes took place in one room. So I think basically they had him for like a day or whatever. And I've heard a few people say they thought he was being too camp and phoning it in because he was being too jolly while he was being threatening. But I actually liked that. That mm-hmm. he, he was... You know, uh, a few people have said he's still blaming the merciless, you know, but I don't know. I, I like the fact that he when he was being threatening, he was just part of his everyday stuff. You know, yes. that was just the way he was. And, uh, you know, he, he, he ran this organization in a, you know, fairly pretty tightly and was up for, you know, threatening the world. But, hey, that's my job. I'm the CEO of Frightening the World Incorporated. <laughs> Incorporated. Um, Yes. No, it's I say it's it it's freaking Max von Sydow as a as as a Spectre boss. I mean, I don't care yeah. if he'd done it on his standing on his head. It was awesome. And he and he was a great one. He was perfect. I then it probably Yeah, I, I he's he's up there with my favorite Blofels, I think. Oh, I mean, yeah. not, not not quite Telesavalis, but uh, yeah, I think <laughs> he played it well. Um interesting he refers to Largo as number 1 though, which again is out of the out of the books where basically Blofeld didn't have a number and everybody else did. So, uh. well, What you mentioned, Fatim, Fat, Fatima Blush, I thought she yeah. was great. I thought she was a very, I mean, it, she was very 80s in her whole approach, like, you know, like a number of the other Bond femme fatales of the 80s. But I thought that she really did a great job as just that having that charisma, you know, that energy in, oh, in yeah. a way I that Kim, she- Kim Basinger doesn't come close to having in this movie. I, again, I think she inspires, informed Xenia on a top later. Yeah. Um, and yes. the fact that she just takes so much joy in 
killing people. Um, I mean, we'll talk a bit later, but you know, in the casino scene where Max Van, uh, when um, Largo says you can go kill Bond now, and she basically skips down the sca- stairs, singing to herself like, "I can go kill Bond." I, you know, um, <laughs> she's, uh, you know, she, yeah, she's incredibly gorgeous. You can see why, you know. Bond and other men would find her attraction and get drawn into that spider's widow, black widow web type thing for, you know, other. Um, I love the fact at the end that basically it's her ego that kills her. Um, it's, yeah, I think she is an absolutely wonderfully rounded out, well-developed character, uh, a great femme fatale, um, on a par with Fiona Volpe in Thunderball, I think, as, as one of the great femme fatales of the series, and beautifully played by uh, Barbara Carrera, who is clearly having a ball playing mm-hmm. a psychopath. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, there's a lot to work with in that role, I mean, to sink your teeth into, and, and she's, uh, absolutely, she's, uh, she embraces it. And, and like I say, I mean, she, she, this is such an 80s Bond movie in a number of ways, including the fact that she really evokes a lot of those the, the, the go-getters, the charismatic, outgoing, A-personality type femme fatales, whereas Kim Basinger is right in that same mold of the ones that have to be rescued, that don't really contribute anything to the cause very much. You know, They're just kind of along for the ride and to look pretty. And there's such a difference between them. You know? it, it's not yeah. even close. Yeah. So we get here the explanation of the eye operation um, uh, and those scenes of... Patachi's eye with the big blue contact lens in, and that freaks me out. Uh, I hate anything to do with people poking around with eyes, so that just freaks me out. Every Um, time. Yeah. Um, So we switch back to Treblins. Bond meets uh, Patricia Fearing, um, crosses paths with Patachi and his nurse, Fatima Blush. Um, And when he's snooping around on Patachi, he's actually seen by Fatima Blush, who Clearly knows he's 007, um, and because yeah. she calls him 007, recognizes him, so she knows he's snooping around. Um, and then we get the attack by Lippy, who is not a count this time. He's actually a wrestler. Oh, <laughs> that was that Lippy. Oh, my gosh. I didn't even realize that was supposed to be the same guy. Yeah, he's a wrestler named Pat Roach. Um, so, again, predating uh, the use of wrestlers as the heavies. Um, yeah. But, uh, um, but Pat Roach was basically... <laughs> probably the best known British wrestler at the time. Um, so, yeah, I got to say that I'll say this, that as good as the shrublin scenes are in Thunderball and they're good. I think this is my favorite part of this movie is this part in never mm-hmm. say never again, because there's just so much good stuff. It's like, it's like watching a slightly better version of what he did the first time in Thunderball. They've, there's more, it's more cohesive this time. It makes a little more sense, and there's some more funny parts that weren't in it originally. You know? Yeah, I, I actually think that the, the fight, the choreographed fight from the weight room through the kitchen, yeah. uh, again using materials in the kitchen for the fight, which Living Daylights, um, <laughs> you know, um, which they didn't do, Inspector. Um, you know, I, I think. It, it's a really well choreographed fight. I love the juxtaposition of the humor as well. They're fighting in the corridor outside. The, the, the folks in the TV room are watching. It sounds like a boxing match, and they're all cheering the boxers on as the fight's going on behind them. And I think that was quite funny. Um, yes. And then, uh, yeah, I know. And then we end up in the specimen room where Bond basically throws liquid in his face, and the guy staggers <laughs> back. Um, this was great. This is so brilliant. Yeah. Um, you, you think it's what I, what I like here? You mentioned. 
the the difference between this and a more movie is the way they do this the gag in here. I think the fact that you know he staggers back and then Connery looks down and sees that he's his own urine specimen. So we get the gag and then Lippy falls forward and you find actually it's the glass in his back that's killed him. Yeah, I think he's great. I think if in a Roger Moore movie they'd have done that the other way around. They'd yeah, have, they'd have made they'd have made the glass the specimen be the punchline. Yes. Uh, Yes, I agree. And here it was the seriousness of the death that was the punchline. And I think that made it better. It made it more dramatic. It did. It did. Yeah. But God, I love though, when he looks down at the, like he's like throws it in his face, he's screaming and you're thinking, oh, it was hydrochloric acid or something. Oh no. And then he looks down and it's, (laughs) fell on the floor. I always, I always forget that moment. And then every time I see it, it cracks me up all over again because it's just such a great idea. It's it is. Hilarious. Not that throwing urine in your face would make you scream or anything. Well, I thought the idea was it was Bond's urine, so God knows what all was in it. So, it- <laughs> well, yeah, there is that. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> probably very toxic. But exactly, yeah. exactly. Yes, you don't want James Bond's urine. <laughs> so we uh, we get the the switch to the Air Force Base, and we get the explanation of the, of the test flight. And this actually makes a lot more sense than Thunderball because one of the things that always got me in Thunderball, and I think we talked about this when we did the movie, is why those flights, the, the, the training flights, had live nuclear warheads on it. Oh, yeah, in and they explain that, it. It never made sense. Here they explain it because that's what he's been trained to do is switch the dummy warheads mm-hmm. for live warheads. So that yeah. makes sense. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah, that was again, that was another thing that I thought this movie is taking a great Bond movie in Thunderball and it's actually like fixing a few things that needed fixing and explaining even better. So in some ways, I like it better. That's not in every way, obviously. But, yeah. but up through here, yeah, I'm like, man, this is actually improving on Thunderball in some ways. I thought that the whole shrubland sequence was better than in Thunderball, and I thought it actually made more logical sense than it does in, in Thunderball. That's really, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, so we then get uh, Jack Patachi actually leaving the, the base in a blue Mark IV Ford Cortina, which is exactly the car I was driving at the time that that movie came out. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's the car I had my first few years at college. That was that was my car. So, oh wow! Um, that was that was that was funny. Um, That's the closest I've come to ever actually driving a contemporary Bond vehicle. Um, <laughs> so what what got me here was I, I love the thing of you know instead of the the the, the, the motorcycle you know, being, uh, and then filming the scene at Silverstone racetrack like they did in, in Thunderball. Instead of the, 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 the bike here, we get her driving along and then throwing the snake, you know, <laughs> into the car, which frightens him off the road. Uh, what, what would she have done if the window was up? Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, the, th- the thing that I liked was that it wasn't even apparently a poisonous snake. It was just to scare him so bad that he would wreck his car. His because car. she right. Because she goes and picks it up and kisses it and stuff. So, yeah. 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 So what I never got here was why did she go, okay, she went back and picked up the snake. I get that. But he was clearly already dead. So why put in a bomb and blow up the car where you're going to leave bomb residue and yeah. stuff and make it be investigated? Well, if she would have just left it, it would have just looked like he'd driven off the road and crashed his car and killed himself. It just made I, it more suspicious. It did. So. I guess I was just thinking maybe it was to make sure he was dead or something, but or to destroy some kind of evidence or something. But but no, I agree that. Oh, unless it was to blow, make sure that he was burnt beyond recognition, therefore they wouldn't find the the false eye and stuff. Maybe I don't know. I hadn't thought of that. Okay, all right. I'll give her that one then. Okay. <laughs> um, 
And then this is where, for me, the movie starts to lose it a bit, where we actually realize that that $36 million um, budget did not go on special effects. <laughs> um, the model work of the B-1 bomber and the launch of the missiles and uh, the green screen back projection of it flying over Turkey, um yeah. out into the Irish Sea um, is terrible. It was not even good. For 1980, even for 1983 standards. It, it, looked it, like the, it looked like the jets in Ice Station Zebra. It's, it's one of the, I thought the missiles looked pretty good, especially for 83. I thought the green screen missiles, the cruise missiles, looked pretty good, but the jet was clearly a model. But, but, but well, yeah, the, the, the missiles were clearly models too, but just think about, you just mentioned Kirshner's previous movie, Empire Strikes Back. Empire Strikes Back, yeah. Consider the model work and yeah. effects in that to this. Yeah. It's true. Even for, for not, you know, this look, this look, those special effects to me were the special effects of a low rent Betamax movie that you would go and get from the video store when you had nothing else to watch. You know, um, I can't, you know, um, Iron Eagle or what was it? <laughs> the Lou Gossett Jr. Yeah. Movies or whatever. Yeah. It was just, ah, I don't know. It looked terrible. So, um, and I think that was a problem, and particularly as we get into the sort of the, the final um, third act. I think just the, the special effects just ruined um, parts of this movie. Um, so then we get to Largo's yacht, where we get to see Largo for the first time. Um, awesome, awesome performance of Largo from Klaus Brandau. Um, to me, makes him... I'd forgotten how good a villain he was in this. Um, I, I think it rates, ranks him up the way he played Largo here as one of the top Bond villains because um, he, he gives him depth, he gives him some yes. nuance. It's interesting. It's it's a tough one because it, he, I, I've been wrestling with this ever since I watched it. This time, I've always known that that was one of the. I remember when the movie came out that one of the things that was being said about it was Klaus Maria Brandauer's portrayal of the Bond villain is kind of refreshing and new. And we hadn't really gotten anything like that through the 1970s, you know, with with uh, the Roger Moore ones, for the most part. He's he's a younger, it seems like, villain, but he's 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 got a, he, he he gives a nice performance in terms of kind of kind of crazy and kind of very controlled at the same time. Um, he's he's menacing, but yet he's kind of laughable in some ways. You know, it's like. He's just a very interesting, uh, and I was asking the question: Whatever happened to him? Because he really had a nice career going there in the early '80s, and he kind of dropped off the map entirely. I don't know where he came. Did he get hit by a bus in 1986? Or I don't know. I don't know. I, no, I've not really looked into it. So. Let's see. He's still around, uh, but it doesn't say uh, Austrian actor and director. Oh, okay. Same as the recent Blofeld. Uh, hey, that's a guy I would have liked to see play Blofeld in Inspector. Yeah. Well, he was in introducing Dorothy Dandridge, apparently, but, uh, huh, I don't know what he's been doing. But no, yeah, I, I, mean, just, thing, I thought it was good. The thing, that, the thing that got me, again, if you compare it to Thunderball, with Thunderball, I never understood, in Thunderball the movie, I never understood why Domino was with Largo. Yeah. I never got anything there as to what it was about Largo other than the fact he was incredibly rich that would attract Domino to him. This one, I could see why Domino was with Largo because he was a charming, other, other than the fact he was rich and obviously funding a dancing career um you know he, he he could be charming you know he 
he, you know, he looked after the orphans. He did charity work. He was a philanthropist. Mm. You know, he, he, he could be incredibly charming. And then you get that switch where she makes some, makes that remark about, well, what happens if I ever left you? Yeah. And he, and he just turns, he just turns around and says very calmly and steely, I'll cut your throat. Yeah. And it's like, whoa, you know, mm. where did that come? I mean, you knew he was going to be a psychopath anyway, but the, just that change in character and attitude yeah. and delivery in just a split second um, was just so brilliantly done. It's like, I can see why she's attracted to him. I can see why she's there. And oh boy, don't you dare put a foot wrong and because he'll have no remorse in killing you. No. Um, and I, I thought it was brilliant and much better than Largo in, in Thunderball, the movie. And what he ends up doing with her actually is a lot of, in some ways worse. Uh, if not He's for worse, Bond, yeah. if not for Bond yeah. being there to help, but yeah, I thought it was interesting too because their relationship reminded me as much of it, it, it didn't even remind me as much of Domino and Largo and Thunderball. It reminded me more of the villain in For Your Eyes Only and Bibi the the skater. Yeah, that was yeah. what it made me think of. Uh, and again, actually. I- in terms of, you know, I said about this informing the, the later Bond movies, I actually think if you think about him, that portrayal of Largo, and then you think of, and the names just escape me, Tomorrow Never Dies, Elliot Carver. Oh, well, yeah, Elliot. I think Elliot Carver's a very similar character. Um, yeah. To an extent, Sean Bean in Gold Knight mm-hmm. is a very similar character. I, again, I think it started to inform that they started moving away from the moustache twirling, I'm going to take over the world bond villains that we sort of had up to that point um mm-hmm. started we started getting more interested more interesting more multi-layered bond yeah. villains um yeah for sure uh, you know I, I you know which i also think drax was but that was pre this one but again i think it sort of started to really inform um some of the you know the more nuanced bonds bond villains that we started to see and i think some of that came out of the, the this version of largo um I may be reading more into things than they're actually here in terms of the influence. Well, it seems on the, no, but it, it seems series. like it. I do see, I do see those connections. Yeah, it seems like it, and then yeah, it's just he's he is a breath of fresh air in terms of villains. That's true. I mean, he's a villain that he's not a cartoon character mainly. He has some moments that are kind of stereotypical, but overall, he's an interesting he's an interesting villain, and we hadn't really had that. Yeah, it's just no. everything about it. Just he did strike me as as very interesting. He he and I mean I think the villains in this movie are great. He and and Fatima Blush are both in different ways just very uh, compelling to watch. In yeah. some ways, they're the most interesting. Th- and Max von Sydow. I mean, in some ways, the three of them are the most interesting things on the on the screen most of the time. Yeah, I would agree with you. Yeah, yeah. Certainly more than than Basinger. I mean, not to diss her too much, but. She's kind of the least interesting. I mean, to, other than the fact that she's Kim Basinger at her height and she pretty much goes around basically naked through half the movie, other than that, there's not a lot interesting going on with Kim Basinger in this movie. Well, she's not really at her height in this movie, though, because this was, I think, like a third movie, only like a third movie. I mean, mm-hmm. people it, it sort of, you know, say this is the movie that sort of launched her career and you know, she was discovered, and apparently she'd been approached to do a couple of other Bond, earlier Bond movies, and but huh. turned them down because she didn't want to be typecast. But then her movie career wasn't going anywhere, and it was like, well, why the hell not? Let's go do a Bond movie. So, um, and and it sort of did. The fact that she was prancing around in, uh, you know, skin t- skin either skin tight leotards or not not a lot, um, yeah. I think certainly helped her. So, um, mm. and I think it did help launch her career. So, um, yeah. 
but she is yeah she is very superficial as a character in this movie um this the domino here is not as nuanced as the domino in thunderball so that's exactly yeah there there's not a lot of things you can point to in this movie and say they did it way better in thunderball but the domino in thunderball is way better yeah. With, again, yeah. other than it's Kim Basinger running around naked. Other than that, there's not a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. you're like, Van, yeah. is that what you noticed? I'm like, how could I not? Yes, it was very <laughs> 1980s in your face. Yes. Um, yes. Um, so we, we go back to um, MI5, MI6, sorry, um, where we see um, intro Q or Algernon at the shooting range. Yeah, what was that um, all about? Why was, where did that come from? Well, that was... You've got to get your cue scene in, I guess, and the, here's the gadget. So that was basically his exploding pen and motorcycle you're going to use later scene. But, I mean, um, Al, Algernon or whatever his name was. What was oh, that? Algernon. I have no idea where that came from. I have no okay. idea where that came from. Not Boothroyd. Yeah. No. Well they, well, they couldn't use Boothroyd because that's clearly an Ian Fleming thing. Yeah, okay. Um, um, so, um, and, of course, now this is where we get the, the, the line about now you're on the job. I hope we're going to get some gratuitous sex and violence. <laughs> oh, it's a great line. Which oh, was a great line. Oh, it's so good. I just thought it was interesting here that he gets a lo- that, that Bond gets along with Q and doesn't get along with him. Well, yeah. doesn't get along with him, but he's, he's, I like that he's very patient with him, right? He's like, he never gets angry or argues with him. He's always just kind of like, smugly, you know, giving him a dutiful yes sir smile, but you can tell, oh, oh, because we didn't mention this, this line. There's a, th- I think this is my favorite line of the whole movie probably is where he's where the where where uh Edward Fox is him is says says you got to get rid of your it's it, your your free radicals or whatever. And he has a good line about free radicals in a minute with with money penny too, the the most forgettable money penny ever unfortunately. But he has but he says something like You've got to get rid of this. You've had too much red meat, white bread, and dry martinis. And Bond says, well, I'll get rid of the white bread immediately, sir. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'll give up bread, yeah. I thought yep. that was awesome. And then he goes and tells Moneypenny, I have to get rid of all the free radicals. She's like, oh. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Every bit of that. All his dialogue was just so good in this movie. Yeah. So, so yeah. good. Um, I actually like the fact that Algernon's lab actually looks like an industrial lab where they actually really do make the stuff. and the- Yeah. For a change. You know, it, it actually, it's <laughs> realistic for a change. Um, so then we get Bond goes to the Bahamas. Um, I guess he's going to go trace Largo, um, but uh, why the hell not? He has to go to the Bahamas because it says so in the yeah, court says, agreement. The, um, the judge said he had to go to the Bahamas. Dang Bahamas, it! So yeah, yeah. Back up. Um, so we get uh, the intro of Nigel Small Fawcett, which is uh, uh, Rowan Atkinson <laughs> oh, in his, in his first ever movie role. Um, wow. So, yeah. And and he wasn't he wasn't playing the um, the character he usually plays Mr. Bean or whatever else. Oh, he, anyways, no, I mean he was he was playing. The thing is at that point, I mean, if you didn't watch British TV, Rowan Atkinson was uh, you know unknown, uh, or you didn't sort of do the the comedy stand up circuit. Um, by the way, his live show is one of the funniest things. I've never laughed myself almost to the point of being sick as I ever did at Rowan Atkinson's live stand-up shows. Um, but uh, he, yeah, he, he was known on British TV, but that was, that was it. He had never done a movie before, so this was his first movie role. Um, so it's sort of funny that he sort of then went on to do the whole Johnny English Bond spoof thing um, many, many years later. But, uh, uh, um, so fun. He, 
again, nitpick. He says he's from the British Embassy. The Bahamas is actually a member of the Commonwealth, so it wouldn't have a British Embassy. It would have a mm. High Commissioner like Jamaica does. So, oh, okay. but, um, but it establishes the fact that uh, Largo is a local ph- philanthropist, you know, the, the flying saucer. I love the fact that they actually didn't use the words Disco Volante for the boat. They actually called it the <sighs> Flying Saucer, which is the literal translation of Disco Volante. Um, I, that bothered me because I knew, yeah. right? I, it's like I understood that having watched Thunderball a bunch of times the last few years. I remembered that Disco Volante was like a Italian or whatever for flying saucer. But Disco Volante, other than sounding like a, a Hollywood actor from the 30s or something, is such a great name. And flying saucer is such a terrible name. Why in the world would they call it the one and not the other? Well, it's a much better name than the, the name that that boat had in real life, two owners on. Oh, boy. Do you know what it was called? No, I'm waiting to find out. The Trump Princess. Oh, God. <laughs> no. Yes. He, he, he did actually own that boat after this movie. Um, he no longer owns it, but yes, he did own it for a while and All renamed right. it The Trump Princess. No comment. Um, yeah. So, um, I, it didn't actually bother me. I thought it was quite good because I, I, I guess that they couldn't use Disco Volante because of the, the court situation of what they could and couldn't use. So I guess just giving it the literal translation sort of worked. Yeah, I guess that's it. Um, and the fact it was a real boat, I thought was pretty cool. Um, you know, the Disco Volante in the movie was sort of mocked up for the movie. Um, this was was an actual actual boat owned by some Arabian prince at that point or oil baron. Um, and then, say, at some point was owned by Trump and then, and now I think he's back in the Middle East somewhere. But, um so we get, uh, oh, so this is where we get Fatima Blush skiing up to Bond at the bar. Um, scene recreated in Die Another Day, slightly. All right. Um, um, yeah. But uh, I thought the interesting thing here, though, is when you first see Fad- Fatima Blush out in the, in the harbor skiing, she's, she's on one ski. She's doing yes. ski acrobatics on one ski, but when she comes up to the bar, she's on two. Two, yeah. <laughs> somewhere along the line there, she had one hidden away somewhere. Don't she ask got, her. Yeah, she got off the big one long acrobatic <laughs> ski and got on two normal size skis. Um, water skis. But yeah, then we get the, the whole double entendre conversation. Again, totally redone in Day Another Day, which is... You know, um, and then we get them uh, yeah. uh, doing a little bit of horizontal jogging on the boat while they go out to before they go diving. Um and again, this is where Fatima Blush makes the remark about Bond being well-equipped and in good shape. And I'm like, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, um, apparently, was, she didn't want to. She she did all the sex scenes herself. She didn't want to use a body a body double. So apparently, <laughs> well, if she was determined to be in a movie with Sean Connery, I guess she might as well get the full Connery, huh? Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> But I was going to say, I wasn't sure. I could never remember. Because, like I said, it's been a few years since I watched this. I couldn't remember if Bond got with her or not. Because she's so evil. I mean, she's great as a character. Yeah. But she's so evil that I kept thinking, maybe this is one of those Bond girls villains that's so bad that Bond doesn't actually get with her. But, of course, he does. Well, yeah, he does quite well in this movie. If, I think if you... Um, the, yeah, he does. Def- definitely three women he sleeps with and maybe four because it's like... Uh, Pat Fearing at Shrublands, Fatima Blush, Domino. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't say definitely, but it's sort of implied that the girl, uh, Nicole at the, at the villa in, in, uh, in mm-hmm. the south of France. So at least four. Yeah, he did, he did pretty well for a guy in his 50s. Um, well, and, and, and I like that it figures into the plot later. 
Yeah, the fact, the fact yeah, no, that I like the fact that they actually yeah. used it later on. But, that was yeah. it was it was kind of dumb, but it actually kind of at least it was set up. You know what I mean? It it yeah. made sense in a way. Yeah. Oh, and the girl in the hotel. I forgot about the girl in the hotel. Yeah, so, that's right. Five times. Um, all right. So um, they go diving on the reef, and she sets up the homing device on the back of his tank for the sharks. And the sh- I thought the shark attack was done pretty well. Um, yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. Again, better than in Thunderball because there was no clearly no glass between. You know, you didn't get the thing where you can clearly see the glass between the sharks and Connery. Uh, you did get the you did get the uh, the toupee appearing and disappearing depending on whether it was a close up shot or a long shot. Um, <laughs> but uh, I thought that was really done. The one thing I didn't get here was um, that the sharks had like a little radio transmitter on them. Who spent the time going down and finding sharks and putting radio transmitters on them and then making sure that those sharks were just where they were going to go <laughs> swimming? But some, some specter flunky got the job of shark tagging, and that's probably not a job that you actually want to be assigned to. No. No. But, no uh, and then we, we get the gag with, the, you know, when he actually escapes, you get, you know, he, he pulls on the, on the fishing line and it just happens to be the girl that he'd been flirting with at the... Uh, on the, at the uh, harbor earlier, um, and of course he ends up uh, in uh, in bed with her at the hotel. Um, by the way, that girl was—do you know who that girl was? Who the actress was? No, that's Valerie Leone, who played the hotel receptionist on Sardinia in *The Spy Who Loved Me*, who made the googly eyes at Bond. Oh um, yeah, yeah. She yeah. was a well-known model, commercial actress in the UK at the time. So, um, so she's actually again one of the few few people who actually appeared in both a official and unofficial. Mm. One movie, um, so it's a relatively small list of people who've done that. Um, That's cool. Yeah, so uh, we get the bomb under Bond's bed in the hotel, which Fadema Blush sets off. Um, which is, and of course he's not in that bed; he's in bed with the girl. So he sees the bomb, the bomb go off in the other, the yeah. other side of the hotel. Another so. good line. It gives us it gives us another good line where he says it shows that we made the right choice. Oh, what's that? Uh, so yeah, your your room of mine. Yeah. Yeah, that was good, and, it, and it, that, it's that was really good because that line was both really funny, but it also helped the audience understand what they had just seen in case they didn't quite get it. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. you, the audience is going, "Wait, why is the explosion over there?" And then you realize it's because he's in a different place. And so, they they could have just said, "You know, <laughs> let's go to your place," but instead they actually let it be a joke, and that worked out. Like I said, there's a number of lines in this movie that I just think are very clever, very funny, and very well done that you don't get in a lot of the other of the Eon Bond movies, just not to this level or quantity, yeah. honestly. Yeah. So then we get him flying out to um, Monaco, um, which is cool. Um, we introduce Felix. Uh, Bernie Casey uh, does a great job, and then Nicole, um, the his assistant in the or his local liaison or whatever, um, who's found the villa. That's a really nice villa that he used in this movie. Um, I mean, yeah. uh, obviously, he's a real place, but it looked it looked really really cool. Um, it did. Sorry, were you going to say something? I just said it did. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then we get a slightly creepy Bond sneaking into the massage parlor after he's followed Domino through town and giving uh, Domino a good rub. <laughs> um, and the, pla- the place, you know, and the place, so ha- of course, happens to be, you know, even though they say it, they uh, do massages for men, the place happens to be solely populated by uh, very attractive young women in micro bikinis. So. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Man, that's, again, it's the mid 80s and they're letting you know. <laughs> yeah, I will say I do find the 
and this is a general comment for the movie, having every single good-looking woman in the movie give Connery the once-over and the longing looks, be it here, the casino, on the street, pretty much every woman he meets giving him the googly eyes, just, I don't know, I just find it a bit creepy. Because um, he's clearly not that good-looking at this stage. Like I, get, I said, again, if they'd sort of gone with the Ramirez look from highlander i could have seen it but here he's clear that you know unless they're all going what the hell has he got on top of his head um <laughs> but i don't know i just find it a little creepy um a little no. over the top and he was not looking that good so no, um the one thing i do find here is you know when he's do- giving domino the uh, the massage and it starts going into more personal areas it's her that actually initiates that rather than him because yes her that says, that's true give it a rub and he's clearly uncomfortable doing it which i like <laughs> compared to some of the sort of, you know the more yeah you know um usually the way around things inappropriate stuff in in his his earlier bond movies and some of the more movies as well um that it's actually yeah he, he he is does seem uncomfortable with sort of you know getting that personal with her at this stage when he doesn't know and, um, and and it gives you that good line too, where when he leaves and the lady's there, and he and and and, the, and she says, "Where did he go?" And she's the man. I don't know. He doesn't work here. Yeah. <laughs> and her look and on her face. There, you, you actually get a, a little bit of acting here from 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 yes. because you get that initial oh shocked look, and then she sort of does that wry smile of well. Okay, that Doesn't may have been a bit of fun. Who who was that guy? That yeah, guy. it's one of those things where you know if he came back, she'd immediately do the outrage thing, but she'd be interested, she'd be intrigued, and if he's charming enough and doesn't seem like a total creep, she might, you know, which is kind of what yeah. happens later is that she, yeah, she, yeah. So, um, and of course, you know, that scene is set up to set up the fact that there's a charity ball and set up, you know, that. That's where he can go meet Largo. So he tricks his way into the charity ball. I love the trick with the cigarette case with the doorman. Yes. You know, ah. He's the doorman into the, in, into the closet and get, put, puts a cigarette case in. And it's like, and this is a bomb. And if you move, it's going to go off. You know, so you've got to stand perfectly still, I think. Is, and they um, pay it off later, though. They pay it off later, too, that he's done they that. They pay it off later. I think it's beautifully done. Beautifully done. Um, <laughs> yeah. By the way, I don't know if you noticed, but in the background, in that see when he's walking through the corridor and there's, there's, there's placards behind, one of them actually says Casino Royale on it. Oh, I um, didn't notice that. No, that's cool. So I don't know if that's just a nice little nod, um, or they were trying to say that that casino was Casino Royale. It, it was clearly the casino at Monte Carlo, but uh, yeah, I thought it was, it was fun. Mm-hmm. Um, so we get him walking into the casino um, and start following Domino around, um, and then and then Fatima Blush is following the two of them. So that's sort of a nice little cat and mouse thing in the casino. And then they mm-hmm. open, the, open the doors and it is, how can you get much more? 1983, it's a video game parlor. Um, oh. I, actually like that, I, I actually like that idea of being at a casino when you open the doors and there's a video game parlor behind it with all the Pac-Man and Space Invaders and stuff. I, thought that would, that, I actually thought that was pretty cool. Um, yeah, that I, <laughs> again, it's so tied it to 1983. I mean, it's just... It's it's. But one I think of those, if you did it now, because those games are so retro, you can buy those. You know, the stand-up yeah. video games. If you did it now, I think it would work. I think it's just that bit in between. Um, it didn't. You know, it, I think it, it seemed old-fashioned. I think now, yes, but I think also there was a period in between where you're just like, oh, that's old, and you're it just yeah. In it's basically anything that you know. Let's put it this way. I feel like Bond's peripheral stuff needs to be classy and timeless. 
Yes. And when you tie him to something that's very current and a fad, it never seems to age well. No, it doesn't. And actually, again, just going back to, we were talking about the special effects earlier with the, with the launch of the, the missiles and stuff. Any of the computer graphics in this, yeah. oh, computer yeah. screen graphics look so dated. Oh, yeah. But when you compare the Star Wars graphics look dated, but they work within the time frame of that universe. But yes. here it just, yeah, it just immediately nails it to early, ni- early 1980s. Um, and it, yeah, and you can't get away from that. So, um, no, I agree. So, yeah. So I actually think Bond's delivery, when he leans between the two um, video game things and introduces himself to Domino with my name's Bond, James Bond, I actually think that's actually a really lazy delivery. I think it's one of the worst Bond, James Mm. Bond um, deliveries. It didn't even leave an impression on me, so I think you must be right. Because you say that, I'm like, I'm trying to remember, and I'm going, I can't even even remember him saying it. So, huh, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, But then, so that leads into him meeting Largo... And the whole video domination video game, um, where apparently they they also have a uh, a tame Cylon as the narrator. Yes, <laughs> I thought I noticed that too. It, it, it's a Cylon voice, isn't it? It's the same yes. thing. I know. I wanted it to say, "Now battling for the control of Spain by your command." <laughs> yeah, and the oh. uh, the the game doesn't really follow what they say, and it doesn't match up with the. The, the amounts they're talking about doesn't, and the scores don't match up. But what the hell? And I actually think a, it. it I actually not. really like it now. I used to think it was really corny and dated, um, but watching it again, I, I, as a set piece to set up the characters of Bond and Largo and them going head to head against each other, um, I actually think it works really well. I mean, you know, the fact that Bond can go from not knowing how to get play the game to be the master of it in three in three attempts yeah okay that's taking it a bit too far that's bond uh, that's just bond, but it's bond. Being bond yeah but it's bond he can he learns things instantly um but you know the fact that largo you know even when he's in immense pain will not let go and when he does he just like calmly you know blows on his hands um but, you know um that he will he will suffer that amount of pain to be dominant and stay dominant and win at all costs i thought was great um yeah so I, I, I think as a device to set the two of them up against each other, it works. In retrospect, it works really well if you stop thinking about it as being a corny early yeah, 1980s video, video game. Video game, yeah. Well, and, and the thing that's interesting, too, to me um, was when, is that, yeah, that Bond go Bond suffers on it first. Yeah. And it's clear, it's like Roger Moore's Bond in the, in the, uh, in the uh, centrifuge in Moonraker, yeah, where he has to show, it's 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 one of those things where when Bond is in a situation like that, he has to sh- he, he he can get out of it eventually, but he always has to show that he can take it longer than the normal man, and then get out of it. You know, it's like he has to prove to the audience. I'm not even saying the character's trying to do this, but. In the movie story, you know what I mean? In the story, Bond has to be seen as first he shows he can, he demonstrates that he can stand up to it and he can take it longer than the average person. And then you realize, oh my God, he's actually going to die from it. And then he does something that saves his life and he's suffering, he's hurting, he's disoriented, he's groaning and got his eyes squeezed shut. But Man, he took that longer than most people could, you know. But here's what was interesting yeah. about this scene: he does that, and he does it fine here. I mean, he, Con- you know, Connery does that absolutely fine in this scene. And then, 
And then Largo does it, and he seems to last longer and not be as hurt by it. Yeah. That was what I thought was really interesting, was that he, in fact, when he lets go at the end, he's not lying on the floor moaning and groaning. He's grinning. Yeah, because he enjoyed the pain. Yeah. yeah, he's like, well, you know, Mr. Bond, you beat me or whatever, but he doesn't seem that upset about it. He just feels like it looks like he appreciates the challenge and he's relishing it. And I, I like that about him. I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, I did too. And I think, again, it sort of added to his character, that, that whole mm-hmm. thing where he accepted that. He accepted the defeat and the pain and the fact that, you know, that he'd met somebody who could actually challenge him for once. Um, yeah. Because he'd obviously been looking for somebody to challenge him. Um, so, yeah, yeah I th- again just adding to that nuanced layers of Largo's character I think he gets another really good moment the last time or two that we see him up on on that at the fortress or whatever too that we'll get to which I thought was really good yeah yeah so um so he writes the check and Bond does that I'll settle for one you know one dance with Domino um Mm -hmm. uh, that line of course now is seared in because Jared has it as the opening line of the six of the best Bond music show that we do um so um, that's sort of seared in my mind now. Um, but I do like uh, I'll, uh, the I'll Settle We Won't Dance with Domino. We get the tango. They they, they move together pretty well. Um, yeah. Of course, we get Bond at probably one of his most crass deliveries here. Where in the middle of the dance, it's, a, oh, by the way, your brother's dead. Keep dancing. Um, yeah, that was kind of awkward. And and the other thing that I, this other thing I, that, that jumped out at me about this whole sequence is that, Bond is clearly, he even says to her, I'm trying to provoke a response from him, so let's pretend like you're attracted to me. And there's no. Oh, yeah, that's real- later on the boat. That's later okay. on the boat. Okay, okay. But all the way through this, there's never a real sense that she's super attracted to Bond. And, and yet at the end, when that's why he's being, when that's why Largo's being mean to her. She never says, oh, he was just using me to get to you. That's all she probably had to say was, no, that was, that was him taking advantage of me to try to get to you. But she doesn't. She just acts like, oh, yeah, we're in love, you know. <laughs> and it just, that, that struck, it stung out to me that, that, yeah, that, yeah. that I, don't, I don't know why she I think, I played it that way. Lago would, I think Lago would have still, still taken that as a betrayal, whatever the circumstances. Yeah, maybe so. But Yeah. Um, and this is where... Uh, Largo says to Fatima, you know, you can you can go kill Bond and stuff, and she does a little dance down the down the steps, which is yeah. cool. Um, and then we get Bond, I presume, later the, that evening or in the early hours of the morning. It's the next day, so I guess it's daylight, so I guess it must be the early hours of the morning. Comes back to the villa. I love the. I, I think this is part of Kirshner's great direction. Is is it's very simple, just Bond walking around the villa, um, eating a, an apple, but. Some of the way he has that framed, those shots of Connery in a tuxedo yeah. within the way that the frame within the doorways and the stairs of that villa as he's walking around, it just looks so damn cool. Yes. Um, I think yeah. it's so, sort of up with some of the Brosnan shots where, you know, um, John Glenn sort of managed to just capture, or Martin Campbell just managed to capture Brosnan as Bond in just one or two views of him, like opening a door or whatever, or peeking around a door. I think it's the same here with Kirshner and Connery. It really captures... I think this is the point. Connery looks the coolest, the most Bond being to me. is just that simple thing of walking around the villa, eating the apple. Um, yeah. Yep. So. And I, th- I remember, I also remember that that shot of him walking through the door being in the trailer, I believe. 
as being it, like okay. I think it yeah I think it's kind of like him it's like he's back you know yeah I'm sure yeah. I'll play the trailer at the beginning of this podcast so we will have we, we will have been heard but but yeah there's I th- I want to say that they're saying like he's back and it shows that door opening and him kind of standing there in the where you could see him through the crack with the apple or whatever I feel like that was a big part of the a big focus of the um, the trailer okay which makes sense and then, yeah and then we get uh he finds Nicole drowned in the waterbed at uh, the villa, um, and then Fatima Blush rushes out. I, I assume she was sort of hanging around, waiting for him to turn up. Um, but yeah. I don't know. But anyway, um, so. and then we get the chase. And I actually think the chase with the motorbike and the Renault 5 Turbo, um, which is the car Fatima Blush was driving, um, you know, it, it, it's a really well done um, chase sequence. I, I actually like this whole thing, apart from one thing. One thing ruins this whole chase for me. Is the damn music? Yeah, you get some weird jazzy score that doesn't work with a car chase at all. Um, but I think the chase itself is actually really well done. I like the bike. I like the way the bike works out. I like the tricked-out bike. I like the the cars. I love the the whole thing of them trying to force him into the back of the truck in the in the tunnel and him spinning the bike round and using the ramp of the truck to, as a escape ramp. Um, I think that's all very very well done. Really clever. So. Yes. Yes. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, was, so again, I think it's one of the better Bond um, vehicle chases, which is saying something because there's been some really awesome ones. But uh, I think it works well, it does. other than the horrible score that they put over the top. So. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Um, and then they basically end up at the um, the chase ends it in the harbor in those tunnels. Uh, Bond gets knocked off the bike; his helmet falls off. He naughty boy, he should have really done a strap up on his helmet. Um, <laughs> And then we get the standoff with Fatima Blush, which we talked about earlier, because you, you said that, uh, you know, when they, they had sex on the boat, it sort of played into this this scene, this final confrontation. And I, I love this um, because he, he really plays with her, her ego that, uh, you know, he's stalling for time because um, she's got him dead to rights and he's stalling for time. And she's, she starts talking about whether, you know, she was the best sex he ever had. And he's like, well, there was this girl in Pennsylvania once. Um, <laughs> And I know it's all a setup to get him to use the exploding pen, um, but I actually think it works really well in the fact that really she's, it's her ego that kills her because she could have shot him numerous times, but oh, she yeah. has to taunt him and play with him and then want him to write down in his memo, you know, that, you know, that she was the best sex he ever had and sort of, you know, which gives him an excuse to get the pen out and shoot her and stuff. So, well, he does, he uh, does the damning with faint praise thing, right? Where he's like, I was going to include you as like among the best or something in my memoirs. Yeah. In my, in my memoirs. Yeah, yeah. And she's like, you yeah. better say I was the best one ever. <laughs> you better write that down or whatever. Yeah. yeah. That was great. I mean, it, if, if yeah, you yeah. think about it at all, it's kind of dumb that she's that competent and that deadly and she's going to fall for that. But yet, no, yeah, it it worked again. They set it up so well earlier that you just kind of you kind of just got to go with it, you know. Yeah, and like I say, I think it worked within her character, you know, because he was goading her, um, uh, uh, you know, and uh, wounding her ego that she had to, you know, yeah. make that point. And again, just stalling for time. And of course, then we get we get the reveal that uh, you know Felix Leiter walks out. and He said he was sit, he he was there all the time listening um yeah. <laughs> so you know at what point was he actually going to shoot her before she shot bond i don't know yeah, but, no uh, kidding felix come on man yeah um so they escape then they um they do the they go for a underwater examination of the flying saucer where miraculously bond gets sucked on board through some sort of underwater hatch but felix doesn't <laughs> um and then felix swims ashore and removes the uh the, the hood of his um 
suit that he actually didn't have when he was underwater, but never mind. Was this the one, this is where they got there by flying the little missiles, right? The Polaris no, missiles? No, 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 that's, that's way later on. Oh, gosh. Okay, gosh. There's several things that are kind of similar in this movie that are confusing me. I'm sorry about that. That's okay. Okay. Um, so, basically, he he's exploring the boat. He gets found out found by the steward who gives him a robe and he takes him up to meet Largo and um, Largo, you know, Suggests they get a drink before lunch, and then Largo goes off to, you know, shows him around, shows him into the financial control center, and then basically says, you've got the freedom of the boat. Go wander wherever you like before lunch. Um, so really uh, confident that Bond's not going to find anything. That, you know, oh, yeah, this is my, you know, home layer, but go. I know who you are, but feel free <laughs> to go poke around. So, um, and of course, he, you know, takes him about 10 seconds to end up at Domino's studio. Yep. And, okay, I'm really going to be nitpicky here. This layout does not work for me. Okay, so when they set it up early with Largo and he walks into his secret control room. Um, so, sorry, I'm going to take a step back. So when Largo's mm-hmm. in showing Bond around and they're in the financial control center and he points, he says to Bond, feel free to go explore. The staterooms are aft. And he points to the door at the aft end of that the, that room. He then turns around and walks to his control room, which is at the other end. So it's at the forward end of that room. Earlier on, when Largo was in his control room and he pulled back the secret mirror that allowed him to see into Domino's dance studio, that dance studio was obviously even more forward of Largo's control room. Yet when Bond walks out of the aft door, the first thing he does is walk by Domino, who's walking out of the door of her studio. Doesn't (laughs) work. Layout doesn't work on the boat. Sorry, it's in, I'm just. It's in another. Maybe it's, maybe it's because my first degree was in marine engineering, and I was <laughs> I spent time on boats. But it was like that doesn't work, guys. Anyway, it's like the it. TARDIS. It's just inside. You're just a big. Yeah, it just it just wraps on on itself. It wraps but around. Anyway. That's right. <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, and then they they, they go to um, to Palmyra. Um, I, I sort of like the idea that Palmyra wasn't an estate in that, or it was his, you know place on the north african coast that he very rarely used because he basically lived on the boat um, so i thought that was pretty cool mm-hmm. the castle um, yeah the, so was the castle here supposed to be the same as the as the, like the the estate in thunderball yeah yeah it was the same name yeah okay because yeah. it was so different that i wasn't entirely sure this was supposed to be the same facility basically because that yeah, was yeah, such very, a miami you know house with a swimming pool and everything compared to this yeah, that yeah yeah they use the same name so but obviously okay. very different yeah um and then we get largo basically you know saying to bond i know who you are the game's over throwing him away um admitting he's crazy scaring domino um and then sets her up for sale to the slave train traders man um, yeah that's hardcore yeah and then bond is chained in the dungeon who the hell has a dungeon at the top of their castle <laughs> largo apparently i guess if you work for Spectre, every every the, other castle in the world has all this dungeon in the basement in the basement yeah. but apparently this one is in the top with a nice view so while you're chained up you can at least enjoy the view which was interesting because with him being chained up, he couldn't see out the dull door. That was they made quite the point out of that later when Largo looks up there and doesn't see him because yeah. he's chained up. You know, so it's like you have a nice window over here that you can't see out of. But I'm just letting you know you have it. You know. Yeah, yeah. I, what I like here is Largo being again being charming and telling Bond where one of the Bond bombs is. But I'm not going to tell you the rest of the plan because you're going to die. <laughs> 
but he does but he does it in a really charming way he does he does yeah and this is where he tells him isn't it where he says you were you were a really good secret agent <laughs> bye yeah yeah <laughs> i love that exchange i just love that again this is like his other really good moment where he's it's it's not that he feels bad about it it's not that he's any less evil it's just kind of like he's trying to compliment a worthy adversary and be polite to him and complimentary. Yeah. And I thought that yeah. was, we don't, you don't see that in the other movies, you know, it's, it was nice. No, it was like, Hey, you played the game well, but you lost and now you're going to die, but have a nice day. Yeah. Um, <laughs> was that, you think that was in the script or was that something that they changed or was that something that Brandauer w- wanted to ad lib or I don't know. I don't know. It was, it was really good. It was, really it was good. yeah, I admit. Yeah. What got me here on it, I'd never noticed it before. So when, well, there's one thing I had noticed before, and then we'll get to the thing I hadn't noticed. So when Largo leaves, of course, he, he, he goes down and he puts down the, the, the boombox by Domino. Yeah. Um, and then he extends the aerial and then presses the play button for the cassette of the tango dance. If it's <laughs> on a cassette, why did he extend the aerial? Anyway, that's always bugged me. I, All right. I noticed him do that, and it didn't register, but yeah, you're absolutely right. I guess I was just so taken aback by that 1983 big boom box, that big yeah, ghetto yeah, blaster, as Q would call it. <laughs> you say, well, something for the American market. Yes. Um, <laughs> oh, that's great. Well, the thing I've never noticed before, so, so Largo leaves, and he, gets to, he, he goes down and gets in the small tender boat to take him out to the flying saucer, Okay. The cruise missile is in the back of the tender, and one of his flunkies has the lid off, and he's messing about with it. It's a live atomic warhead, and one, he's basically letting one of the henchmen tinker about with it while it's on the back of his little boat. And I was like, why wouldn't you have that like secured, and why would you let your flunkies be messing around with a live atomic warhead? That's a fair um, question. It wasn't even like it was the it wasn't even like it was the the nuclear scientist guy, you know. It was just one of the random henchmen, <laughs> uh, um, uh, and they solved that by throwing a tarpaulin over it so nobody will see it. What? Why does it matter if no, anybody's going to see it? It's all your henchmen <laughs> around anyway. So I, yeah. Um, so we get Bond escaping using his uh, laser watch. Um, interestingly, the laser is in the class, not in the uh, not in the the bevel. I wonder if that was so they didn't get accused of copying the, the standard Bond watch thing. Um, yeah, I was curious about that. It usually comes out of the side where the little setting thing is, or whatever. Yeah, right, um, and then we get so Bond escapes and he rescues Domino, who, by the way, is in a lovely little negligee and nothing else. Right? Yeah. That- yeah, okay. Just just bear that in mind for a couple right. of scenes later on. I figured you're okay. setting something up here, so I'm going to make sure. But yes, that's yeah, I think so. Okay. Um, so he rescues Domino. We get the horse chase around the, the castle. And then we get, again, the, the five-cent special effects <laughs> with the, ho- the horse jump off the, off the top of the deck. Because when they start the jump, we get that. We get an extreme close-up of Bond and Domino. Off they go. With a horrible... With a horrible back projection of a big sun or something behind him or whatever. It looks terrible. Yeah? Yeah, yeah. And then we get the fall, which is clearly a dummy, a dummy of the horse and two dummies, which is so superimposed you can actually see the blue line around the horse. Is it? Mm-hmm. it? I mean, it looks like they've cut it out from acetate and stuck it on the film. It's, it looks terrible. And then we get the, the last shot of the, the stunt horse and the two stunt people falling into the water. Do you know the significance of that horse fall on movie mm-hmm. history? 
No, I do not. I can't wait to find out. So there was so much outcry about that stunt horse and that that stunt that that from that point on is the point where you get the disclaimer on movies about no animals, no animals were mistreated and hurt during this production because of that stunt in this movie. Oh wow! Okay, because there was right. such an outcry about it. Even though it was a stunt horse and it had been trained and it wasn't that big a fall, but so many people thought that that basically they jumped a horse yeah. and made it fall 40 feet into water, which would have killed anybody from that height anyway. Um, yeah, that, that's from that point on is why you now have the disclaimer on every that's, single movie that includes an animal that no animals were. Or that is interesting. I also I rewound it a couple of times because I wanted to. I noticed that something ended up going under the horse before the horse hit the water, and I wasn't sure if it was Domino. And I rewound it a couple of times and watched, and it was actually like her clothing. There was like a piece of clothing that was separate from her that fell. Oh, was it Bond, was it Bond's shirt? Because all of maybe, a sudden he's not wearing a shirt. That must have when been he comes, in. Yeah, maybe they a, call that in continuity because when he comes to the surface, he's not wearing a shirt. Oh, there you go. Yeah, because there's something light-colored cloth. Okay, because I was wondering where his shirt went. So yeah, I saw that from the other side was Bond, Bond's shirt disappeared, and I was like, hang on, where did his shirt go? You saw the <laughs> shirt come off. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It, it lands under the horse, so you never see it again. Uh, I, kept thinking, okay. I kept thinking, oh, my gosh, the horse lands on Domino. How does she even survive? There's no way. It'd be killing her. But that's, yeah. that's, that was it. Okay. All right. Yeah, because she might she manages to still be in a negligee, but he's he's um or his little, her little teddy or whatever. But he, yeah, his shirt's disappeared. So okay, okay. So maybe they did catch that in continuity, and that, then they're rescued by a a submarine that shoots lasers. Pretty cool. Yeah, I was gonna ask you. I remember that now. That submarine when it shoots its laser blasts or whatever, they're going up at like a forty-five degree angle, but the castle's yeah. right there. Yeah. So are yeah. they going all the way around the Earth and coming back down and hitting it on the <laughs> on the second time around, or what? Because there's no way they they would have to go up at a 45 degree angle and then come straight down to hit where they hit. That was interesting. Yeah. All right. And talking of saving money, so the um, the footage of the submarine diving and the footage of the submarine underwater is from another movie. You know which movie? <laughs> not not uh, not Ice Station Zebra. So I don't know. Ex- yes, it is. It's oh from no. Yes. Another another ice station zebra connection. There are two. Yep. That yeah. That is actually f- footage from ice station. One of my oh. favorite all time favorite movies. Ice oh, station yeah. zebra. Wow. Yeah. It is. This way. Yeah. It's in my top top twenty at least. Yeah. Absolutely. Yep. Definitely. Wow. Uh, that's that's incredible. All right. So we get them on the um, on the submarine. Um, we get uh, you know having the shower in the submarine and um, and offering a Bond a. Uh, Lunch at his club if he succeeds in saving the world, which I thought was actually a nice little touch. Um, yeah. <laughs> He's like, oh, that, that'll motivate me or whatever. I forgot what he, I may have, yep. what is it? I may have an, another uh, engagement or something, but yeah. Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, so this is why I asked about, remember where Domino was basically wearing nothing but skimpy lingerie when she was rescued? Yes, because, I do remember because that. Okay, so they're they're in the control room of the submarine, and they've got a map up of the oil field. And what does Bond ask Domino? Oh, I can't remember. Something about well, he's asking her where he. I, I don't remember because she says. Does she have the Does she have the pendant that that Largo gave her? And she reaches 
in under a shirt and pulls out the, the, the pendant from around the neck that has the literally has the X marks the spot on it for yeah. where the bomb's going to be. That's right. Where did, she didn't have that with her when she was rescued. Where did that come from? She didn't have the necklace? No. She, all she had on was that little skimpy piece of lingerie. I just, okay, I thought, well, I mean, because I remember he put it on her and said, I know around your neck is the safest place it could be. It could be, and then, and then I she just, took it off, and, her, and and she hung it up on a mannequin in the dance studio and showed it to Bond, and then, oh, yeah. Huh. But then and she he, says it's not very valuable, and... Yeah, Bond says it's not very valuable. What he meant by it being valuable was the fact that it was literally something that, if you put it on a map... Showed you where the, the bomb was going to be. And what sort of bad guy basically makes a piece of junk jewelry out of something that looks like one of those kits yeah. to get your kids It Christmas wasn't very impressive, no. Yeah, which literally has a, the bomb's going to be here on it, you know. Um, <laughs> and why? So, yeah, so for me, I, we talked about how surprised we were about this movie. I, again, I think this movie suffers from the same thing that a lot of Bond movies do, even up to the latest one. It's the th- it just falls apart in the third act. Yeah. I think, does. From the from the rescue of Domino onwards, it just completely falls apart. I think it, it's been it, pretty good up to that point. It started to lose out. my interest. I mean, it's funny because the underwater stuff is not as remotely as heavy-handed in this movie. But even still, man, and if you're not really into that, your brain starts to tune out just because it's so slow. I think you know, it's like watching astronauts fighting on the moon. It's just like it's so it's so ponderous that yeah. that if they don't Fix that through sh- quick cuts of editing. It just you just start going. You glaze over a little bit, you know. So yeah. So this is this. Is, so we see the underwater guys, and they finally the um, they come through to the underwater the, the temple, most brilliantly lit underground temple I've ever seen. <laughs> it I is. didn't see them put didn't see them put up any lights. So um, <laughs> but uh, and then this is where Bond and Lighter use the um, the missile platform thing so they start yeah they get fired out of the submarine oh right but yeah i yeah. actually thought those were kind of cool because it, it it's kind of goofy but why not just give them like jetpacks or something but on the other hand when the when the shells pop away from those missiles and they're uh they're on these little little platforms platform those are like platform. those are real i mean like the military has had things like that for years they don't use them that much, but I've seen like test footage of soldiers actually flying around on things exactly like that. So those were not yeah. totally total BS. Uh, yeah, no, I don't. I, I think it, basically this was a, we got to get a jetpack in here somewhere. And yeah, <laughs> you're right. I forgot um, about that. From um, Thunderball. But from the other, Thunderball, the other yeah. thing is, yeah, it makes no no sense because basically, you know, there's an underground river there that takes you to where Largo is and you're in a submarine. <laughs> Why not just swim underneath or use a, you know, like Largo and his team did, a, a sled, you know, an underwater sled or something. Why fly up to somewhere to get then go back down into the water when you were already in the water? Um, it's a, it's a valid, valid, uh, valid question. <laughs> but, uh, all right. So, uh, and then we get the, 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 the fight between um, the Marines and the bad guys very superficial, very quick fight. Just, I don't know. There was no real tension. I didn't think in the sort of the firefight in the, in the, in the, the tomb temple, whatever it was. Yeah. Again, it just kind of lost me a little bit at that point. I just yeah. started thinking, um, uh, you know, yeah. And then Lago's take. Yeah. And again, I got confused. I think Lago then took the bomb 
threw into yet another chamber that was the other side of the, the temple. Like the temple was the entranceway to the wherever it was he was taking the bond. Then we get him and Bond again doing a lazy fight for the thing and then Blago gets I think gets trapped between the sled and a reef. And then while Bond Bond is trying to un defuse the bomb, Largo's reaching for a harpoon gun and then all of a sudden Domino appears like the Celestial Madonna with her hair floating above her and shoots Largo with the harpoon gun, which is actually in the, um, that is in the, the novel and the original screenplay was, it, she didn't kill him on the Disco Volante, she did actually kill him in, as part of the underwater fight, so that oh, was okay. straight out of the original screenplay cool. but she's just sort of like, just suddenly appears and kills Largo and oh, we're done it's like really anticlimactic ending. It was, yes. For such a great villain, it was just like, oh. And it happened so quickly, you know, like, you know, it, I think if, you know, you've turned away to, you know, grab a couple of M&Ms or take a sip of your wine or whatever, you'd have missed it. I mean, it was yeah, just like, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, so oh, I guess that um, was it, huh? That was it. And then we get the sort of the coda at, uh, in, back in Nassau with Domino in the pool with a tiger swimsuit. Um, yeah. And then Bond hears the noise of the gate, goes to investigate. It's Nigel Fawcett, throws him in the pool. It's like, oh, you know, M wants you back. And it's like, oh, we get the wink, breaking the fourth wall of, uh, and then he's like, oh, never again. And we get your favorite. <laughs> never theme say, song. never say, never. <laughs> <laughs> I never thought I'd be singing that three or four different times today, but that's funny. <laughs> so apparently, apparently Sean Connery wanted a different ending. Oh. So. So apparently he and one of his friends had come up with an alternative ending. Okay. Which was, was Bond and Domino walking down the street in Nassau, and a man brushes by them, causing them to do a double take and look back. And the camera shifts, and we see that the man is Roger Moore. No, no. <laughs> no, no, no. And it was Roger who would have looked at Connery and said, never say never again. <laughs> See, we always find out about things like that, and we're like, "Oh man, why didn't we get that?" And there's, there's uh, so many. Connery and Moore both wanted to do it, but the Eon, Eon. producers, Irving mm. Kirshner, um, and yeah. the, and that they were basically like, "No, no, we can't do that." So. <sighs> I'm saying we. I almost wish we didn't know about these things because you're always. <laughs> it's always like. We could have had this cool thing, and we didn't get to have it, and and I and I just am disappointed that I even know that it, that it could have happened. And didn't, so. <laughs> I, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have looked these things up. But. <laughs> but no, that's pretty cool. That would have been. What imagine if it had been Lazenby or something, or just I mean, you know. Well, the, yeah, they, or even Lazenby. They did talk talk, you know, uh, to him earlier on. But yes, mm-hmm. it's because um, this one, uh, you know, I've said before, you know, like having Connery and Skyfall would have completely thrown me out of the movie. But this one was. Everybody knew it was sort of a tongue-in-cheek, hey, we're, we're sort of getting away with doing this because we've got the mm-hmm. rights to do it. But we're not trying to set up a whole... Well, McClory did talk about trying to set up a whole series, but... you know, a Thunderballs. It, a Thunderball remix. Yeah. Um, how, how do you do that? I mean, how do you Well, he would have keep... taken the characters, the characters they had the rights to and done something okay. with it, I think. But, hmm. um, but uh, yeah, it, you know... This was always a, a, sort of a, a bit of a tongue-in-cheek one, anyway. So I think it would have been a fun, fun ending. Rather, the, the way it was done, I think, was really cheesy. Yeah. The end bit. So, um, yeah. I, like I said, you know, we said I, I, in some ways this was a certainly the first two thirds, and I, not quite as bad as the Die Another Day 
losing it, but maybe Spectre level losing it in the third act. Um, you know, there, there could have been, it, it was pretty good up until that point. And then I think it just sort of lost its way at the end. I don't know whether they were on it. I know they ran out of money, so I don't know whether that was oh. part, partly stuff towards the end, the bad special effects. I don't know. It just didn't work with, with the payoff, I don't think. Um, yeah. But up until that point, I, I was actually really quite enjoying it. So. Oh, absolutely. That's the thing is that that's, I think that's why it ends up around the two-thirds of the way down the list, at least to me, is because, like you said, like the first, you know, the first two-thirds of the movie are, are really good. And you're thinking, this is going to be one of the better overall better bond movies i really thought so and then yeah i I, honestly i have to admit i started losing interest in the final third of the movie because it just kind of it just i don't know it just like you know you've you've just gone over the specific reasons but just overall it just started turning to mush on me it was like a bowl of cereal that was nice and crispy for the first two-thirds of the meal and then in the last third it just kind of got weighted down and mushy you know yeah, that's a good analogy. I'm never going to look at a bowl of, bowl of Rice Krispies quite the same again. But uh, yeah. <laughs> Well, never say never again, Al. <laughs> well, that's true, yeah. Um, but yeah, that, I, I think that was it. I think that's probably why, uh, yeah, the two-thirds mark, you know, around 20th out of 25 is, you know, pretty much where it, it lands for me as well. Um, but actually rewatching it this time, I was actually quite surprised how much of it I did enjoy because I've always had a very negative view of this movie. Um, and it's you know when we do our regular rewatches, it's not one that we particularly rewatch. So I've probably only seen it maybe I don't know, like you said, half a dozen times or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and it did did surprise me um, how much of it I did enjoy. Um, I still can't. I still find the soundtrack incredibly annoying. Um, yes, and I think that takes away from some of it. But uh, but overall, I was pleasantly surprised by it. I will say. Yeah, I have to say that I think that the best things about it are the lines that Connery gets and um, the funny the funnier parts he gets and then Klaus Maria Brandauer and then uh, the, the whole scene at Shrublands is really good. I, every, all of that is just top notch. I, I have nothing bad to say about any of that. So Cool. All right. So uh, anything else that we need to talk about this movie? I don't think so, no. I think we pretty we much... All right. I would I would say that I'll never watch this movie again, but I will never say never again. again. (laughs) (laughs) And you do realize that what that means in terms of now what we have to watch for the next episode. Now we go on to other things. (laughs) No, I've been two years. I've done it. Two years. I'm going to make you do it. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) In fact, I think we should do a double next episode. I. I think we should do oh, a no. Casino Royale double feature and watch the 1954 oh, no. Casino Royale and the 1967 Casino Royale. So there's three Casino Royales, and we have to watch the two that are not good. Um, <laughs> I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> well, let me. All right. Well, I think, we'll, I, think, we'll, I, think we'll, I think we'll have a very interesting discussion. All right, we'll plan on that. But I'm, let me ask you this: the only Bond. I think that we're to the point now. We know that Sean Connery is done. Roger Moore has passed away. Lazenby is well out to pasture. I think that we're to the point now that Pierce Brosnan is done with playing young, dashing spies. I think November Man was as close as he's going to get to playing a, you know, and the whole point of that movie was he's old. So the only Bond we have that could potentially do something like this movie again is Daniel Craig. So let's say that in a few years you've got. Timothy Dalton. Well, yeah, Dalton's kind of older too, though. I, let, 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 let's this way. 
let's say in a few years when we have our next Bond and he does two or three movies or whatever, could you ever see Daniel Craig doing a movie like this, a McClory-type coming back no. for the money, playing Bond one more time, or even an Eon movie coming no, back? No, I couldn't. But I actually could see Piers Brosnan doing something. I mean, at unfortunate timing, literally, as we are recording this, Piers Brosnan is doing a live streaming of Goldeneye. Oh, what's he doing? I uh, didn't know about this. He... he He's actually doing a live streaming commentary, a rewatch of Goldeneye with Piers Brosnan doing live commentary. It's happening right as we on what on YouTube? Recording this, yeah, on on all sorts of streaming channels. Oh wow! Yeah, I had no Um, idea. So he is still very much involved in and play and loves to play. You know, acknowledge that he was Bond and Bond was a big part of it. Um, I could and, and and you know I think. I saw somewhere somebody online asked him, you know, would you do a movie of an aged somebody, you know, like Bond in retirement, tutoring, you know, the next 007. I could see him doing that. I could see him playing an aged Bond, you know. Well, that was kind of November Man. Yeah, sort of. Um, You know, a bit like The Rock, you could say, was like Mm -hmm. Connery's Bond in retirement movie. November Man was Brosnan's Bond in retirement movie. It's true, yeah. Um, So, yeah, I could see Brosnan doing something um, at some point, potentially, I don't think it would ever ever happen. And um, that's just me wish fulfillment. Um, I would like to see him or even Timothy Dalton do something with a you know a, an older Bond type character. Um, I don't think Daniel Craig would. No, I think Craig's once he's done, he's done. Um, yeah, but, I, do uh, I do too. But never, never say never again. Never um, yeah. All right. Uh, you know, and at the, at the rate we get Bond movies now, anyway, there'll all be a hundred before we get the next one. This is true. It's <laughs> <laughs> a good point. All um, right. Yes, sir. All right. So next time, we're going to double up on 54 cas- and 67 versions of Casino Royale. And it's taken me two years to get you to watch that movie. We're going to call him Casino Royale with cheese. Royale with cheese. <laughs> All right, Alan. Thanks so much, man. We will see you on our right. next uh, episode. Cheers. On our Magic Secret Podcast, we'll return. This has been a White Rocket Entertainment Production.